Greetings, dear listeners. This episode was a scorcher. We had our friend Jason Willick of the Washington Post on the show today to talk about the Trump raid and what this moment tells us about the health of our democracy. It was a contentious discussion where we really got into some meaty first principles. Shadi and I go at it hard about what can sustain a democracy and whether any society truly deserves authoritarianism, while Jason makes some profound observations about politics and the rule of law. The conversation is, as usual, divided in two, with the blast part for paying subscribers only. To become one, go to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe to join and listen to the whole thing. On to the show. Okay, so uh, what do you think? Where should where should we start? I mean, I could start like this, which is to say that um, you know, seconds before we started recording, seconds, minutes, uh, hour, um, there was a. Seems like the the story broke that 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 um, the raid on Trump's uh, villa in Florida was actually not floated all the way up to the attorney general. That in fact it was just signed off by uh, by uh, the head of the FBI, and that it was at least in the telling of this one article in Newsweek, um, you know, the product that they were all so focused on having this be a almost procedural sort of thing where they just go in and Trump's not in his uh, in in his house and everything uh, to just sort of make it as low key as possible so it wouldn't have like a political impact as if they. On some level, just they, they didn't even anticipate that there would be political impact. So, you know, I we, we wanted to have you on, Jason. Yesterday we were talking about this. Jason, you and I were talking about it on chat. Shadi and I were talking about it as well. Um, you know, about the, the impacts of, of uh, the, the Trump raid um, on, on democracy, on America, on the future of the republic and the rest of this. But now when it turns out that it's, uh, you know, sort of... Uh, more idiocy than malice that that led to this. I still think we have all sorts of things to talk about. Uh, but you know, I, just to, to situate readers, uh, uh, listeners as they're as they're tuning into this, uh, that's the state of play in the whole drama as we got started. Um, so Can I don't know, Jason. I mean, what do you what do you what do you think? Like uh, you read the the Newsweek thing. Like, uh, what do you make of that? For example, is it do you? You cover a lot of the sort of law stuff you've been, you know, writing about uh, the possible prosecution of Trump after January 6th. Um, do you think this is this is plausible or are they hiding something? Do you think that that there might be more to this? What's what's your sort of initial take as you as you read that story? Well, the Department of Justice isn't saying anything um, on the record, which is annoying because, you know, it's one thing if they're going to say, we do not discuss ongoing investigations. We do things by the book. It's another if you're leaking like a sieve to all the reporters while claiming that you don't d discuss it so that, you know, you're telling the Post and the Times that you have that this is just based on records and it's not based on January 6th. And then you're giving these these quotes not attributed, but with more detail to Newsweek saying, you know, who approved it. And Garland didn't, in fact, approve it. It was signed off by Chris Ray, the head of the FBI. So they seem to be, you know trying to have it both ways where they play by do it by the book and don't um, don't comment on it while they also, you know, try to leak selectively to control the narrative. Um, so it's hard to know for sure if they're trying to hide things or walk things back or put attention on certain things. I guess, you know, the way things have played out for the last 36 hours, it's generally, you know, all pointed to, yeah, they just were looking for the records and they went to a magistrate judge in a fight with Trump over the records. And this is how they tried to do it. So that, you know, that would suggest that the speculation that they're actually looking for something related to January 6th or there was something larger going on is not the case. But, you know, I, I, it's 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 been what, uh, 48 hours since the raid, we, as we know, with these kinds of things, more more stuff could come out and Scott Perry, a Republican representative, just announced that he uh, had his stuff searched by the FBI and he's somebody who they were looking at in relation to January 6th. So I wouldn't rule out yet uh, the January 6th connection. Yeah. 
Well, I'm not sure, at least from my standpoint, that it really matters all that much who approved it or not. Um, the effects, in my view, will be similar. And maybe I can just, I don't want to do like a rant or a, a mini rant, but please, I can say a few things that might prompt both of you, because I've gone through a bit of a shift in terms of my own reaction to the Trump raid. Um, at first, I was somewhat neutral, and I just tweeted one or two things that were critical of Republicans, and I think right, rightly so. I thought that their response, including Ron DeSantis's response, was absurd. Ron DeSantis had a tweet where he referred to the Biden administration as the regime. I think that's inappropriate to put it mildly because uh, we do live still in a democracy, however flawed it may be. A democratic and regime. I think no? it also... <laughs> <laughs> Go on. And I think it also does a disservice to those who actually live under dictatorship. And this has always bothered me about the new right, the far right, or even just Republicans increasingly, they talk about America as if it's an authoritarian regime. This is not, and, and, you know, it makes it very hard to have a reasonable argument with folks like that because then words have no meaning. If you think America has actually become a regime, then we, we're just, we're not on the same plane of reality from a basic political science standpoint about what this country actually is. Okay, but that's that's where I started, just as some background to listeners. Increasingly, I am not neutral, and I want to be careful about what I say. And my original desire was to stay out of this and to say relatively little about it. But I do feel pretty strongly about what's happened. So, I mean, I can't just be relatively quiet about it because it does actually relate to pretty foundational questions about our democracy. And because um, I, you know, I'm, I'm writing a lot about the quote unquote problem of democracy, I should probably, you know, I should probably have something to say about this. But um, I think that the more I think about this, well, first of all, regardless of whether the FBI raid itself is justified. And I don't think any of us can really speak to it because we just don't have enough details. I would want to just put that to the side and say, even if it is entirely justified, um, it's not good for American democracy. So the fact that I see a lot of liberals and Democrats celebrating this step is crazy to me and incredibly irresponsible. If anyone looks at this news and says, yay, then I don't know what, you know, then I don't know if they really, I don't know if they're thinking about the health of American democracy. They may be thinking about their dislike or even hatred of Donald Trump. So people are using their dislike of Donald Trump and they're allowing that to distort their assessment of what's happening. And um, and that's been really frightening I to see what is almost a unanimous response on the part of liberals and Democrats, at least um, the ones who I've read and obviously folks, uh, you know, pontificating on Twitter, although we don't want to we don't want to take that as being representative, although it is representative of a particular elite that spends a lot of time on Twitter. These people, um, you know, I just think to myself, if the I don't know what the saying is, if the shoe was on the other foot, in other words, um, they're, they're so trusting of the FBI. They're so trusting of prosecutorial discretion. All of a sudden, this has never been the left's position. And it's never been, you know, I, I could go on. I just find it incredibly bizarre to see people having this unquestioning faith in the FBI, in prosecutorial decisions. It's just remarkable to me. And they wouldn't stand for that if if the positions were reversed. So it's also an incredibly hypocritical position for them to have. Okay, that did turn out to be a rant. <laughs> I don't know, Jason, run with any of that, because I know you and I have been chatting about all sorts of things. So just pick up any thread of what Shadi threw out there and, and, and let, let's run with it. Well, one thing I would say is I, I find this kind of depressing because I think all of this, you know, as with all things Trump, just sort of confirms uh, all the polarizing tendencies 
So Shadi said that Democrats wouldn't be have such a benign uh, view and uh, uh, subservient view to the, you know, the law enforcement authorities if the um, if it was a different context. And of course, that's true. Uh, and also, you know, Republicans would 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 um, have historically been the party of law and order and have applauded federal law enforcement. So it's just like everybody is just creating exceptions, you know, and it's just sort of an unstoppable uh, trend that uh, people are going to support these institutions when it serves their objectives and not when it doesn't. And and, you know, Shadi said whether the raid is justified. I, I've also, you know, another another sort of depressing thought is no one's ever going to gr- agree on whether it's justified. Uh, Democrats are going to say it's justified no matter what. And um, Republicans are going to say that it's not justified, even if, you know, something big turned up. I mean, that's what we've seen with all Trump related things with Russia. You know, I remember when the IG report came out on the FBI's handling of Trump's of Comey and Trump's Russia investigation, uh, the Russia investigation, he was uh, looking into Trump in. And, you know, the IG report for some people confirmed that Comey had done nothing wrong and there was there was adequate predicate for the investigation. Everything was fine. And for other people, it confirmed the FBI's abuse uh, of its authority. It, it's just we have we have the same facts. We we look at the same things and we draw completely different conclusions because it's not it's no longer something that's going to be resolved by evidence. We don't have smoking guns anymore. To some people, it looks like a smoking gun. To other people, it looks like a like a gun that hasn't been fired. It's it's it, so so we're just you know we're all gonna double down on our uh, positions and. And so I, that's why I find, you know, and this is what Trump does to our politics and the reaction to him. His, his sort of interaction with American partisan politics just produces this loop of, of polarization and uh, recriminations. And there's no end to it. There's no conclusion. The idea that there's ever going to be a conclusion is, is delusional. People are, are just going to hold their views even stronger at the end of this. Yeah. You know, and, and Jason, why, why, why? But I guess I just want to put out a question that is more rhetorical, but maybe you do have thoughts on it. I mean, presumably some, because a lot of a lot of the people on you know my quote unquote side of the spectrum, I think, are otherwise well-meaning. Not all of them, of course, but some of them certainly are. And I've been surprised how some people have taken a you know a very hard line um, in supporting this raid and investigation without question, without doubt. And I marvel at their certainty. And I, I don't. I mean, most on most things, people don't have any like certainty is usually elusive. So it's it's interesting to see this. But these are what what's dry. I just I'm trying to understand how they can't see the dangers of their position. And well, because it seems obviously inconsistent. Because I'm sure if you told them, well. If Hillary was being targeted by law enforcement and she actually had been, has been, so that's not like a hypothetical, presumably they would be more skeptical. I mean, before before you jump in, Jason, you know, for me, Shadi, I, I just, uh, you and I have been, again, offline sort of going at this. It's, it's you said many people on my side are well-meaning people. And and again, offline, but, but you know, and, but you've said it on the podcast as well. You You said... You know, you're concerned that the Republican Party is losing a commitment to democracy. And my, my repose to you offline, less online, uh, I, I, you know, I, I think we do need to talk about this uh, on the podcast, is I, 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 don't, I don't see this as, as a problem of well-meaning people. I, and, I, and I don't see uh, democracy surviving or not because people believe in democracy. Um, I think what you're seeing right now, exactly what you described, is our society as a whole being unable to sustain democratic norms is what it comes down to. And that has nothing to do with individuals believing one thing or another. It's that, it's that, that, that what Jason was describing, this polarization, this whole um, uh, cycle that, again, you know, I know people really want to blame, and I'm more than happy to blame Trump as an accelerant and uh, an incredibly toxic force that, that, that drives us further down the spiral— but we're all going down the spiral, and it's nothing to do with with beliefs, uh, commitments to values, none of that. Because exactly, you know, what you said and, and what Jason just said, right? 
this this was the dynamic during Russiagate. Um, what 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 most Americans seem to have forgotten, which I'll never forget, my former editor uh, at the at the American Interests, Jason. I don't I don't know if he ever said it in front of you when we were there together. Um, he 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 would loudly say. Everyone knows that the FBI is the dumbest service in the entire U.S. government, <laughs> right? And 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 somehow, as a, as a country, we've forgotten that. And now it's just is is oh, the FBI is on our side. Oh, get her, lock her up. Oh, get them, lock them up. You know, and it's 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 pure mob witch hunt mentality, right? I'll take well, yeah, issue have- with one thing, Demir, before Jason, because yeah. just because you you put me on the spot on this <laughs> democracy question, yeah, and I do disagree quite a bit with what you just said. I do think it has a lot to do with a basic democratic question, which is in in political moments of extreme polarization and duress, people's commitment to democracy is tested in a very specific way. They are so afraid of the potential results of free elections if the other side wins. They consider the other side to be so personally threatening, either to themselves, their community, to their sense of the republic writ large. So it's also a question of the meaning of the state and the nature of the state. And because the stakes are so incredibly high, um, neither side, although, again, I want to qualify, I think it's certainly the Republican Party that is less committed to democracy at the current moment. Disagree. But that's not to say that Democrats are particularly good on this either. And I think we're going to find in 2024, if Trump wins or even if Ron DeSantis wins, Democrats are going going to have a lot of trouble accepting the result as legitimate. Why don't they accept the result as legitimate? Because the other side is existentially threatening, right. which means to me that their commitment to small d democracy is not strong enough. Now, we can ask, we can interrogate why their commitment isn't strong enough and what can be done about that. But at some basic level, they aren't willing to respect democratic outcomes that are not to their liking. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a rhetorical debate. We're mostly on the same page. I would just say that saying something like the Republican Party is not committed to democratic norms. And then all you have to do is read Jason's paper for a little bit, the the opinion page on there, where it is the Republicans are the, you know, and not just Trump, not just that Trump is a uniquely toxic force that's driving us to this, but the Republican Party has been taken over by a Hitlerian conviction. And in internalizing that, I don't see that much of a difference in in the whole in the whole sort of thing because honestly, there are many well-meaning uh, Republicans on the other side who feel the same way about liberals and 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 the rest of it. And the question is then like, who's right and what's true? I don't think those are relevant questions. But Jason, sorry, we've been we've been talking past you. Do you have any thoughts? Well. I was just going to say on the FBI specifically, you're having now some conservatives, I think uh, some Republican representative may have said abolish the FBI and you're having some Republican pundits uh, or conservative leaning pundits say this. And that might sound kind of glib, like abolish the FBI. That's like abolish the police, like whatever, like, but, but there actually is, you know, a tension in America that like basically law, the police power was meant to largely be carried out by the states. And we, we've created a national police force that actually doesn't sit that that well with our federal constitution, which which sort of saw a very limited uh, national law enforcement role. And, and, you know, and instead we've created, you know, federal laws so that we do have this national police force and it's enforcing, you know, it has jurisdiction over virtually everything, at least in theory. And, and that is a real a real structural problem. So I don't know if we're going to ever abolish the FBI, of course, there's going to be federal law enforcement. But there is this question of how the structures that we've created fit within our system. And we've seen some of the problems with having a national police force and its tendency to get involved in politics. I mean, it was it was knee deep, hit, uh, you know, shoulder deep in politics in the, the pre Watergate era. And now and then we claim that we removed it from politics. And of course, it's going to be involved. And that's a big dilemma. The other thing I would say about the democracy question is. Demir, you shared this uh, article of some, you know, former federal prosecutor. I'm, I'm getting flashbacks to the Trump days when former federal prosecutor was the pundit, you know, that you were always listening to, and they were always telling you what's happening, what what this search means, what this arrest means. Anyway, some former federal prosecutor said we can charge Trump with the Espionage Act for his misuse of classified 
information, which just reminds me that that's what Eugene Debs uh, was charged with. So, you know, if you imagine a time when in America where democracy seems uncertain, where the forces of authoritarianism seen on the march around the globe, but you have a progressive American president who's con committed to democracy, committed to self-determination using the Espionage Act. I mean, that's how the Wilson administration felt when it was using the Espionage Act against Eugene Debs, who was a candidate for president and, you know, won millions of votes, I believe, from from a jail cell. Yeah. Um, a socialist, and, and, right? Socialist convicted socialist. felon. That's the other thing that, that has been on Twitter a lot, right? <laughs> they, they convicted him, they threw him in jail, and he won 3.2% or something of the vote uh, from prison. Right. And, and, and if you can just imagine at the time how how that was protecting democracy. That's what protecting democracy meant. Eugene Debs was a threat to democracy. There was authoritarians on the march. He was, you know, he was, you know, essentially with his advocacy against World War One, giving aid and comfort to these people. And it's just, it just is a reminder of how when you're in the moment, you know, what seems like being on the side of democracy is not necessarily seen uh, that way a um, hundred years later. To be fair, though, I mean, the Eugene Debs story also points to the fact what Shadi and I spent a lot of time talking to Walter uh, Mead last week about, you know, that that in fact, you know, the Republic has been in has been in these wrangles before. And it's sort of, you know, uh, part and parcel of, of of our tumultuous democracy. So, I mean, in a, in a in a weird way, it does give some bizarre comfort to to how this sort of stuff goes. Um, you know, and, it's also yeah. I, I would just say about the, the Debs thing, because it's also like. Americans are like, liberals used to be liberal. Look at the 60s. They were pro-free speech and they were liberal. Now they're becoming, you know, um, now they're trampling on civil liberties. They don't care about it anymore. You know, and, and we feel like this is some uh, big uh, revelation or some big departure. It's like, no, progressivism in its, you know, we think of the Wilson administration as the one that inaugurated sort of progressivism as a major political ideology in the United States. And it came into being, you know, throwing throwing dissidents in jail. So I'm not saying that, you know, that's what today's progressives do. I'm just saying the idea that, you know, the, the sort of categories, the tidy categories we have of different political ideologies in the U.S. are not, you know, consistent over yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the thing that strikes me um, on, on, on this is uh, another disjunct, um, which I... I I would like us to chew over uh, sort of as a, a core question. And that's, and that's uh, the debate about prosecutorial dis, uh, uh, discretion, but, but not in the way of that, that a lot of people have, have talked about it, um, you know, whether it's, it's, it's wise necessarily in the moment, but actually more of a first principle sort of approach to it. What you see, what I see when talking to and reading and, uh, listening to uh, supporters, sort of um, unquestioning supporters of this raid, is a kind of quaint, uh, touching, um, and ultimately misguided belief that the law exists above the state, rather than the reality, from my perspective, which is, which is that the law emanates from the state. And and of course, you know, when you get to these sort of questions about uh, sovereignty and the ability to do anything, you know, on that level, really what you are talking about is, um, is you know, the law becoming – if you understand the moment as the law existing as part – within the state, not, not somehow existing universally and floating above it all um, – you realize sort of what's going on, and that's just sort of the normal flow of things. The, the, the weird thing is, to me, watching Democrats right now, is that, you know, their view of Republicans and the, the Republican Party and Trump is that the law is what we're fighting for. You know, at least on a first principles basis, that strikes me as somewhat incoherent. Obviously, a good state has a good rule of law, but it's not that the rule of law exists somehow outside of the state. And it's our state that's actually uh, decaying right now, not our commitment to rule of law. That's not exactly crisp how I put it, but maybe you guys can help me unpack that a little well, bit. Well, look, I, I, think, I think it's odd that many liberals have this, have this position considering that they're very skeptical of law enforcement in other contexts, like this idea that the law is neutral, that, oh, if the FBI says so, or if it went through an internal process, 
at the Department of Justice, even if it wasn't approved at the highest levels, they're making an argument about some kind of neutral rule of law, but they don't apply that in other contexts. And, you know, every prosecutorial decision is a choice. And maybe it's worth bringing up a surprisingly good speech. And I, you know, I have to be careful about how I say this because (laughs) this is pretty much apostasy. But it's a podcast. So, I mean, if people want to attack me, they'll probably have to attack me in context or so I hope. But (laughs) (laughs) yes, they have to have gotten this far after I did my rant at the beginning. But um, so this is a speech by former Attorney General Bill Barr um, at Hillsdale College um, in September 2020. Um, So we're talking about Trump's last Attorney General and someone who was very much associated with Trump's badness. You know, we can debate whether or not that was warranted. But putting that aside, he did give this speech, which I think makes some pretty interesting points about prosecutorial discretion. If I could sum it up relatively quickly, I think that, you know, part of his main message is um, that the prosecutor um, is a human being and you have to weigh different trade-offs when you're deciding who to investigate, who to charge. Um, you're making a choice because if you use the letter of the law, a lot of people could be considered as breaking the law. We make choices about who to prosecute. And he gives an interesting example of this um, uh, let me see. Oh, yeah. Well, um, it is a little bit complicated, but basically um, when the Department of Justice charged someone for violating the Chemical Weapons Convention Implementation Act because she apparently put chemicals on her neighbor's doorknob because of uh, love, tr- you know, acrimonious love triangle. OK, by the letter of the law, that person could be charged. But is it warranted? Is it just? Is it the is it actually the right use of prosecutorial discretion? And you could apply that to a lot of different contexts. And um, he mentions as well as Supreme Court's unanimous position that, quote unquote, not every corrupt act by state or local officials is a federal crime. So even in terms of how we investigate corruption, um, corruption is not the same as a crime that should be prosecuted on the federal level. Um, He also quotes Supreme Court Justice um, Robert Jackson. It's a really good. This is a really good one. Let me let me find it here. Okay, who says, quote unquote, the prosecutor has more control over life, liberty and reputation than any other person in America. So in theory, prosecutors can do quite a lot. They make decisions as individuals and they can overreach. And we have to we have and they have to weigh these different considerations. So the question as far, you know, if we're taking that as our inspiration, and I think generally speaking, even if people don't like um, William Barr, they might, you know, respect Robert Jackson if they have heard of him. But um, that basically, uh, I was going to make a really profound point that I'm forgetting now. But but basically, with with any decision, there are competing concerns. In this particular case, I would argue that the competing concerns are worth considering carefully. So people say, oh, rule of law, accountability. If Trump committed a crime, he should be held accountable. He is not a divine ruler. He's now an ordinary private citizen. Fine. But quote unquote accountability isn't the only consideration that a prosecutor has. There are any number of other considerations. And for us, I think one thing that we should consider is whether this FBI raid and investigation increase the existential tenor of American politics. That's not good for democracy, in my view. And if I had to point to the most important things that I'm concerned about when it comes to the future health of our democracy, it is the perception that political competition is existential. 
that means that, in other words, what I mean by that is we don't see our opponents as opponents. We see them as enemies to be defeated, again, because the stakes are so high. So even that's so we can talk about accountability, but we should also talk about whether or not this puts us on a path to worsening polarization. And as you would say, Demir, where one side doesn't see the state's actions as legitimate. So rule of law, does rule of law actually exist if 50% of the country doesn't consider the Department of Justice or the FBI to be respecting rule of law? It just, it's, you know, and anyway, um, so that's just some thoughts based on Barr's um, remarks in 2020. I don't know, Jason, if you have other thoughts on the implications of his speech and how it's relevant to this question of prosecutorial discretion. Sure. Well, I think I think you made a good point about, well, Trump should be treated like anyone else. It's like, well, OK, well, yes, we all agree with that in theory. But, you know, there's this old saying the rich and the poor alike are prohibited from sleeping under the bridge. You know, people are, are differently situated. Not everyone's going to sleep under the bridge. If in the Trump situation, yes, anyone with classified material, you know, it should be taken back by the government. OK, well, how many people are leaving the White House in a, you know, a six hour rush after trying to overturn the election and being impeached? I mean, that's, you know, there's different circumstances where different people have classified information. And that's something, you know, it appears that the FBI may have made a mistake if they thought that this was the situation where you go in uh, with a raid rather than with a subpoena to compel the uh, production of this information. The other thing I would say on, you know, I was talking to Demir when there was some uncertainty about January 6th. And if the raid could have to do with this, Demir was asking, well, did Trump commit a crime on January 6th? You know, is there is there a crime that that he could be charged with? It's like, well, yes and no. It's a, it's an entirely uh, political question because the statute that's being contemplated, which is, you know, obstruction of, a, of an official proceeding basically hinges on the word corruptly, whoever corruptly obstructs an official proceeding. So um, so do you have a you know, was was Trump doing so corruptly? I, I suspect that that question maps onto your political understanding of January 6th. Well, he thought there might have been irregularities. He's Trump. He he, he thought, you know, he had to fight, um, you know, was that really corrupt? I don't know, versus he knew he lost. This was an orchestrated coup to overthrow the United States government. Um, it was it was corrupt. You know, the, our law exists, especially because our law depends on state of mind. The criminal law generally requires that somebody act with a certain state of mind. And when we're so in these different universes, I mean, I think of these police videos, you might have thought that having, you know, body cams on the police would, you know, determine which police were good and which were bad and which committed a crime and which didn't. It's like to the contrary. We see the same video and draw different conclusions. So I worry that uh, this ability, you know, we saw basically what Trump did on January 6th and uh, whether it's a crime. I personally do not uh, believe that that rises to the level of the crime as as I understand the statute. But I think a lot of people do because they see the behavior differently. So I think we're going to struggle um, to have a, a rule of law in this context where we where we don't have the kind of consensus that we used to have, because it really did depend on it really does depend on having a consensus about what certain terms mean. You know, it's it's full of terms like reasonable. What would a reasonable person do? Well, we if, if people have have such different values, um, you know, legal systems are supposed to reflect sort of the sense of the community. But if but if people have different values and to some extent, you know, juries from different places um, can, can address that. Of course, we're, we're in this problem that I like to point out where these federal investigations of, you know, politicians and trials of public figures are going to take place in D.C., which is a, a very liberal uh, jury pool. So it's it's um, I think it's a big tangled mess and it's going to require, you know, people all the more prudence and all the more, um, you know, um, forbearance and, and wisdom in enforcing the law. So the the thing that I, the way I read uh, the bar speech, which, again, I would really encourage all of our listeners to spend the, the 10 or so minutes just going through it. It's it's not terribly long and it's very crisply written. Um, it's it's slightly different than than you came at it, Shadi, and it's reflected a little bit in what you were just saying, Jason. What 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 I feel like he's getting at is what I was sort of bumbling about earlier. Again, is this concept 
that I think a lot of people have, that the law is something transcendent, when in fact, as you said, Jason, it reflects, it reflects the community that it comes from. And what Barr is getting at, and I think it's a, it's a really remarkably well-put argument, is that uh, prosecution is a political act. Shadi, you, you situated in terms of, of uh, you know, decisions by an individual. Um, and, you know, uh, Jason, you were talking about discretion. But, but what's more to the point is that the rule of law at the limit is going to be a political act. And what Barr is calling for in the piece is... I suppose something like Republican virtue and prudence in, uh, among the highest um, uh, officials in the land that are entrusted with this immense power. Uh, and he's talking about the attorney general at the head of the DOJ um, because the power is so awesome um, and uh, their um, uh, accountability is tied to, uh, you know, not even through any sort of direct democracy, but, you know, through through an appointment and uh, then, you know, basically being appointed by the executive and then vetted by uh, the legislative. Um, the, it, it, it comes down to is that that basically it it is about individual prudence, but it's also about prudence uh, tied to understanding that the law is not transcendent, is not some sort of truth. The law is not the word of God. It is not. It is not true. It is uh, what the state, you know, through a very complex process in a democracy has sort of come up with and accrued and 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 basically governs itself through and by. Um, you know, the, the, the parallel that that is not explicit in the piece, but it's one that 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 struck me as I was reading it. It's it's, again, sort of like the, the folk version of what people think about the Supreme Court is that the Supreme Court reads a bunch of law and judges on it impartially. And part of the sort of, um, you know, again, folk outrage at how the Supreme Court has been, quote unquote, politicized, um, is, I think, actually a misunderstanding of what the law is and what the Supreme Court is. And one of the things that, that again, people who follow the Supreme Court a lot more closely than me um, refer to all the time is that, uh, especially uh, the Chief Justice, this one and many previous before him, are always weighing their final um, rulings with an ear to what the society will be able to bear, basically. Because even though they are legitimated through the Constitution and appointed to lifetime appointments, a good Supreme Court justice understands that their own legitimacy is actually paper-thin and is based uh, on the reality that their writ is only respected insofar, or their writ is powerful only insofar as it's respected. So, you know, Shadi, at the end of your, your, your sort of description of Barr, you said about the DOJ respecting the rule of law was the phrase I wrote down as you were saying. It's not that. It's not that the DOJ respects or doesn't respect the rule of law. It's that everything the DOJ does needs to be done with an ear to politics and understanding that the DOJ itself, its own legitimacy, is tied to whether the country, the community, um, actually thinks that it's acting in accordance with what it sees to be, you know, right, if you will. But that right is not truth. It's it's basically consensus. And this gets us back to where we are right now. And Jason, to what you're saying, that that the consensus is broken down. We we see the same video. And we, we, we have completely divergent uh, uh, understandings of it. We read the IG's report on the, on the investigation, the Russiagate investigation, and I remember that. That was a wild time, that, that, that it was just complete divergence as to what the IG's report actually said. Um, and, and that's where we are. That's why I think this is such a, such a, a, a dangerous moment. I don't know what it was like when, when Wilson was, uh, was jailing Debs, but... but um, but yeah, I think that's, well, the, I suppose, that's the key. Yeah. Okay, so it's dangerous. And I suppose the question is, and Jason, you said that the key now, at least, you know, in an ideal world is forbearance and wisdom were the words that you used. I completely agree. I suppose it's an, I, I mean, I, 
That's a nice thought, and maybe it will be possible for our grandchildren, but I don't see any plausible scenario by which we get to a point where a critical mass of people are exercising either wisdom or forbearance. Now, I do wonder if um, the original the original sin, but there's always an original sin before whichever original sin you're highlighting, is, okay, r- yeah, well, I can say it. Let me say it. Russiagate. That th- because there wasn't an underlying crime, the fact that there were several years of investigation from law enforcement against a sitting president, first of all, I mean, doesn't set a great precedent. But then this question of the underlying crime, which you alluded to, uh, Jason, that if obstruction of just when you're obstructing justice for a um because of a crime that didn't end up existing, it does call into question the whole endeavor. We don't have to go into that now. And I don't think Russiagate is nearly as bad as Rep- as Republicans not respecting the outcome of the 2020 election. And we can debate the numbers, but, you know, according to various polls and, you know, we can problematize why people are saying that to pollsters, but also the fact that uh, as far as I can tell, a majority of um, Republicans on the national level were not willing to condemn Trump's claims of a stolen election. That's so, but, you know, but so Russiagate was bad, but then we saw something worse that sort of compounded. And then we get into this endless cycle. But it is worth pointing out that there is some responsibility on the part of Democrats for basically not accepting Trump's legitimacy from the get-go and finding ways to investigate him perpetually, even if there wasn't an underlying crime. But Jason, I don't know if that sounds right to you. I guess it's two things, forbearance and wisdom. How do we get that? Yeah, okay. Well, I would just say, I think that is right. And I would say before Russiagate, don't forget, there was but her emails. There was Hillary Clinton's email investigation, which she still, you know, harbors plenty of resentment over and tweets like but her emails, you know, and and it was the same FBI that was doing Hillary's emails as was then doing Russiagate. Right. This question of whether she was mishandling classified information on this private server that she set up uh, for some reason. So, you know, it, it just goes back. And, and so. So, you know, Jim Comey was involved in both. Um, And and this question of getting the FBI to the extent possible to not be influencing our elections is ideal. But but again, you know, we we should say we're talking about the legitimacy through the eyes of Trump supporters, through the eyes of, you know, progressives. It's, well, the law doesn't have legitimacy unless you prosecute. Correct. Because then you're you're allowing somebody to be above the law. So. but the law, these investigations. But this is also, also. Let me just say this idea that no one can be above the law is absurd, considering that there are so many people who were and continue to be in effect above the law. Let's talk about the financial crisis of two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and the fact that barely anyone um, suffered real consequences and was actually imprisoned for. Um, the kinds of activities that ruined hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives in different ways or had a profound effect on ordinary people in a very tangible sense. But, so, I mean, there's white collar criminals who are not actually put into prison. And so all of a sudden now, well, let's also be frank. I mean, the Obama administration um adopted a very light touch when it came to prosecuting financial crimes in the aftermath of the financial crisis where was all the outrage um then or now about that i mean it's just like i i it's hard for me to take these claims seriously but isn't yeah, isn't the implication whatever. isn't the implication though like again let me push you both on this from my perspective and i i like saying this i and i think i don't know jason how much you recoil from it i know shadi you have recoiled from it but it's the problem is, is is this idea of transcendent justice it's false it doesn't exist like that we have an idea of what justice is but it's it itself is political and politically uh, legitimated through consensus do you know what i mean there is no such thing as justice that exists outside of this. 
I think that's a really profound and important point to sort of harp on. But but no, we, I mean, look. Yeah, go. I mean, at, at common law, a felony was something that was punished by death. So, you know, if you think about how many, you know, millions of, of people who are convicted felons now, I mean, we used to think it was just to, you know, actually, I mean, yeah, of course, we used to think it was all sorts of punishments we now consider barbaric were, were, were justice. We used to think all, uh, you know, it totally, I, I, yeah, I mean, I'm someone who, who maybe uh, have gotten more cynical than absolutely the law and what we consider justice is a product of the political realities and consensus. And, and just on this question of the leadership of the DOJ, I think what we may be seeing with Merrick Garland, you know, if it's true that he didn't sign off on this and that this was just, and that they thought that this was no big deal. It's that, you know, that far from showing this kind of um, uh, superior capacity for, for processing all of the, equities at, at stake here that, that you have people now, you know, and I, my read of, of some of these democratic lawyer types is that they're very smart. You know, they got great LSAT scores. They went to great law schools. They can tell you all the precedents, but, but that's totally missing that, that sort of, um, uh, ineffable thing that, that we need to, to keep the law together at a time like this of fracture and deteriorating consensus that that's missing because that you can't do a test for it. You can't do uh, there's no precedence that, that will tell you what to do exactly. You just need judgment. And uh, and, you know, it may be that that's that's uh, what we don't have. Yeah, I, it, they used to call it civic virtue. Right. And but it's judgment. Right. Because virtue, again, sort of gets into these ineffable transcendent things but it's it's prudence and and judgment uh that we're talking about the only thing shoddy you know i'd 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 you know i'll save you a little bit of the you know russiagate being the original sin because you know i've written about this before um uh how bush far- 2020 well you can you can go no, back- sorry bush 2000 bush 2000 there's bush 2000 but but you know for me and here, Jason, I'm pretty sure you and I disagree, but I remember when McConnell made uh, the decision over Merrick Garland in the Supreme Court. Ironically, Merrick Garland's in it as well. Again, I thought to me that was, you know, by the books, fine, but it was a nasty step, a nasty step that really damaged uh, a level of trust um, in in, yes, it again, was legal but nasty. Le- legal but nasty and really sharp-elbowed in a way that I think left a lot of uh, lasting damage. But roll back from that. Uh, you said correctly, I think, uh, Shadi, that you know part of the prudence of the Obama administration, you're pointing to the financial criminals. The, the, the better case is, in fact, that he didn't uh, actually prosecute the entire Bush administration for torture. Exactly. I think that is a much uh, closer uh, parallel to this. He said, we're not going to do this. We're going to close the, 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 this chapter, even though there, there you know, might be a case to be brought against certain people that made certain decisions that do not and could be found uh, to be contrary to all sorts of statutes. Um, he decided not to do that. And, and I think that was a very prudent move. But going back further, as you said, Bush 2000 was, was uh, uh, radicalizing for Democrats um, uh, they saw they, and it was again this kind of disjunct between uh, you know seeing uh, two different things and then interpreting things completely differently. But uh, you know, go further back than that. Uh, it was it was again the 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 hounding of Bill Clinton um, over you know what ended up being lying about a blowjob. Um, and again, I'm not going to get into the the details of of like who's right or wrong, but this is a cycle that we've been you know a circle that we've been sort of going down and sort of uh, cycling down the toilet, uh, sort of collectively on this. And I, I insist on that. This is a collective endeavor. You can you can pick the side, pick the point at which it really got bad, and say this is the side that did it, and they are the ones that are really bad at this. But this, in my Contrary to you, Shadi, this is why I say we as a society are increasingly unable to sustain democracy rather than one side or the other not being committed to democratic outcomes. It's the same thing. But but I think putting it my way as opposed to your way 
gets us out of this idea that there are any heroes in any of this. And I think that's really important at this point is to recognize okay, that look, no one's acting heroic. I didn't say heroic. anything about heroes. No, but in, I, in our okay, discussions, but... you're, you're worried that one side is less committed to democracy than the other. My counterargument to you is we collectively are circling the drain and as a society are unable to sustain a democracy. That it's not, that it's not a set of beliefs and, and, and um, you know, moral commitments to, to values that's really at stake here. That it's actually our ability to stick to a democratic proceduralism is uh, informed and is is shaped by our broader societal health, which is in trouble. That's my argument. Right, and I mean, and okay, I mean, the but whole... is that mm. go on, Jason? Well, I was just going to say the. I think Demir is is hitting on a fundamental conservative insight that that our founders had, which is that no person is going to prevent uh, you from is going to sustain a democracy or prevent you from having a democracy you know when i've always when some people say well he's an autocrat it's like well i mean that requires certain institutions and structures it's you know it's fine our, our system is supposed to be set up so that it's fine if the president kind of you know wants to be an autocrat a lot of our presidents have right i mean fdr jackson lincoln arguably in some ways and the tyrant you know, 20th century <laughs> Yeah, I mean, <laughs> pre-Watergate presidents. I mean, there's all sorts of presidents, right, who have wanted to make choices that, you know, it, it's it's not about the choices that they want to make. It's about how they're constrained institutionally and following a procedure. So I think Demir's right that the the way to think about it is, do we have the capacity to to have to stick to the procedure and have the the balances necessary? Putting putting your faith in an individual to have to have good motives and to therefore or or a party. Um, you know, there's something to that. I mean, we talked about civic, civic virtue, but, but there's going to be competition in the system and the parties are going to push the limits. And, and the question is, can the system hold, can it contain this sort of back and forth that's inherent to human, human relations and, and human politics, which is not always, uh, in the public interest. And, you know, I mean, it's the, you know, as, as Madison said, the clash, the clash of interests is supposed to be productive in some way. So I, I, I do think, you know, it, it ends up and it's ironic because if you if you start thinking, well, this person is pro-democracy, therefore they're a hero. I mean, you end up destroying the 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 uh, what you're trying to build because you're you end up, you know, putting your faith in an individual or party beyond what what it can sustain. We should all be very down on any individual and, and party to sustain our our uh, to sustain democracy, because, as you say, it's not a matter of, of personal preference. It's an institutional uh, framework. That's it for part one of the conversation. It's, as usual, divided in two, with the last part for paying subscribers only. To become one, go to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe to join and listen to the whole thing. Hope to see you in the bonus.